Beep bop, beep boop, beep bop boop. It's Wolf the Robot here to give y'all the scoop. PTBP 694.2. Y'all know the drill, and y'all definitely know what time it is. But uh, wait, uh, do y'all actually know what time it is? Because I have never once looked at a clock. I hope we broadcast at a decent time where people can tune in in mass droves. Today's Howlin' with Wolf comes from at Sexy Bacon Strip, who tweeted about the show and tagged at Pretending Pod. A delicious, smoky, and salty thing to do if I do say so myself. They write, Howdy Wolf, just a heads up. Ever since all that weird stuff started here in contention, the dumpster behind Al's Tires and Tiger Sanctuary has turned into some grade A quality eats. Much like this podcast, it's got all the goo and slime in all the right places. Really though, this podcast has become one of the main things I look forward to. It's so great I even got my own slipcase for Delta Green and I can't wait to put my players through hell. Thank y'all and fuck Jeff Bezos. Thank you for writing Sexy Bacon Strip. I ain't never met a bacon strip that I didn't find at least somewhat erotic. I appreciate you saying those positive things, but the way that none of those positive things were directed at yours truly specifically has me feeling some kind of way. Time to hit up Al's Tires and Tiger Sanctuary for some delicious rubber and possibly endangered mystery meat. Remember to tag us in some nice things on the social things if you want us to probably read a thing that you said. Spread the love, spread the goo, and remember to spread the word of wolf too. Now prepare a warm spot on the floor to vor even more of this hardcore lore with Gorgalore. And I'll roar and roar for an encore from the troubadours that I adore. It's Kudzu with no backbone. In a high school classroom, the analog clock on the wall said 3.30, and the chalkboard said detention. Sat at the only occupied desk in the room was a boy of 13 or 14, Jeremy Pettymore, wore a denim cut-off jacket, a raggedy thin western shirt, wrangler jeans, some punky boots, and a perpetual scowl. There was a knock on the door, and two more boys of a similar age entered the room. The first was Ken Krinkelhoff, wearing a letterman jacket bought for him by his dad. Ken was tall, fit, had great hair, and walked with his head held high. The teacher greeted Ken warmly, then happily acknowledged the second boy, Ash Hornbeam, with his black, messy hair, white t-shirt, cheetah print vest, acid-washed jeans, and scuffed tennis shoes. The teacher administering detention was confident the new arrivals didn't belong, but Ken said they wanted to keep their friend Jeremy company. The teacher was reluctant, but said these two boys are allowed to do whatever they want. Jeremy said his schoolwork necessitated his friends, so... If he was supposed to get anything done, he had to go with them. The teacher was relieved to have an excuse to end detention, and Jeremy flipped him off on the way out. 
The young Pettymore asked the other two if they were ready for the woods that night, and Ash opened his jacket and revealed a bunch of water dynamite. Ken seemed a bit reluctant, but agreed to go since this year was their last hurrah. Ken would have to meet them in the woods, though, since his mom would still want to drive him there herself. As they walked through the hall, an upperclassman asked them what they were up to that night. Jeremy said they were going to the woods, that's their thing. Once a year, they go into the woods to look for some folktale legend called Old Madge. They left Silas Cole K-12, slapping the banner sporting their mascot, a miner, on the way out. That evening, Ash drove Jeremy to the woods in his older brother's car, a 1991 Firebird painted a weird, ugly gold. They turned onto a dirt road, and a squirrel ran into the path of the car. Ash was able to quickly swerve and miss it. They pulled into the gravel parking lot for the contention woods, and there were two cars in the lot already. One had a boot on the back left wheel, and the other had a notice taped on the driver's side window that threatened a boot if it wasn't moved. There was also a Ford Bronco with a lift kit on it over next to the small, usually unoccupied park ranger shack at the entrance to the woods. Ash left a note under his windshield wiper that said, please don't boot my car, signed Ash Hornbeam. They checked if the two cars were unlocked, both were. In the first car, there was almost nothing, as if it had already been cleaned out. In the second car, there was a bunch of camping equipment and a title for the vehicle, which listed a Stuart Feldman as its owner, registered in the city. Jeremy found some liquor and a pistol. Ash grabbed some of the camping equipment and they headed over to the shack where he saw an elderly man wearing a state-issued uniform sitting on a stool, just waking up as Ash approached. The boys realized this wasn't the normal forest ranger of contention. He introduced himself as Woodrow, or Buzz for short. In addition to the normal ranger paraphernalia, there was a big thing, a hand sanitizer and a board behind Buzz covered in pictures and pieces of paper thumbtack to it. Buzz took out a Polaroid camera, took their pictures, took down their information, citing a recent string of disappearances in the woods as his reason, and placed the pictures and information up onto the board. Ash asked if they could borrow the first aid kit and Buzz gave it to them. Ash shot an M80 into the distance with his slingshot and Buzz about shat his pants. So he went to the bathroom and Jeremy seized the opportunity to grab a fire extinguisher, two machetes, three flashlights, and hand sanitizer, and they shoved it all into their bags. They looked over the missing persons board. There were 18 missing people, several of whom the boys recognized. They saw Stuart Feldman on the board. He was an older, bald British man in incredible shape with a thick jawline. He had claimed to be in the woods on business. Jeremy also saw the keys to both the Bronco and the shack itself and snagged them. Buzz returned and the boys asked if they could take a picture of the missing persons board so they could have a reference if they ran into any of the people in the woods. Buzz agreed and gave them a Polaroid picture of the board of Polaroid pictures. Woof. The two boys gathered their things and headed off to their usual camping spot on foot. As they hiked, Jeremy noticed tracks. It looked like a car and a smaller vehicle, like a four-wheeler, had driven down the trail. When they arrived at their spot, there was unusually no firewood waiting for them. Ash went to chop at a big log, and Jeremy started looking around, frustrated at the lack of logs. Ash heard a rustling nearby and saw a man's head pop up from behind some bushes. 
The man made dead eye contact with Ash and popped back down into the thicket. Ken Krinkelhoff's mom, Krista Krinkelhoff, drove him to the woods in her minivan and explained she didn't like the tradition he and his friends had of going to the woods once a year for their silly game. Ken said not to worry, and a baby fox jumped out trying to cross the road. Ken's mom hit it and crushed the fox without remorse. They pulled into the parking lot and saw the same cars Ash and Jeremy saw, plus the 91 Firebird Ash had borrowed. Ken's mom mentioned how multiple people who had gone into the woods recently were missing, and she especially wasn't happy he was going into the woods with Ash and Jeremy. Ken grabbed his gear, said goodbye, and headed to the ranger shack. Buzz introduced himself, took Ken's picture, asked for his information, and posted it on the board. After talking about the missing people for a few minutes, Ken headed off into the woods. A group of three high school girls walked into the Contention Public Library. Judy Krinkelhoff, a senior at Silas Cole and the older sister of Ken Krinkelhoff, still wore the same clothes she bought for freshman year. She was very anxious, never said the right thing, and wanted to be in a relationship with the coolest girl at school, a rebel who bullied Judy named Elizabeth Liz Lonklin. Liz wore a leather jacket and Doc Martens, she smoked cigarettes, and she was a self-described bitch. The final girl, Sharon Shadow Berryman, formerly a popular cheerleader, was now obsessed with going to graveyards, funerals, and hospitals to engage with all forms and stages of death. Shadow asked Stephen Pages for the location of occult books related to voodoo, and he led them to a small room in the back with a small sign that read, Occult. Inside, they found a book titled, Voodoo. Shadow said they would find what they were looking for on page 419, and Liz revealed she wanted to torture someone named Brittany for sleeping with her boyfriend, all while Judy went on about how beautiful Liz was. Page 419 described a ritual that must be performed while surrounded by trees at night. There were a few ingredients necessary for performing it. The left pinky toe of a dead squirrel, dirt scraped from the earth after it had been stepped on by a menstruating calf, the blood from a former cheerleader gone goth who goes to Silas Cole K-12, and bird pee. Smash cut to the group leaving the library with the book. Smash cut to them on the side of the road, bent over a dead squirrel, cutting off its pinky toe. Smash cut to them in a field, scooping up dirt under a cow, bleeding from its ladybud. Smash cut to them standing in a parking lot, waiting for a bird to pee slash poo on them. Smash cut to Shadow, scratching herself with a dead squirrel toe and dripping her blood into a vial. Smash cut to two days ago, when Shadow told Liz her boyfriend was cheating on her with Brittany from Spinkbonk High in the city and Shadow and Judy agreed to help Liz get back at her boyfriend. Smash cut! Back to the present. And the girls were on their way to the woods with all the necessary ingredients. Shadow turned onto a gravel road and a possum walked out in front of the car. Shadow drove straight for it and crushed it under the car. She was happy for the possum since it was in a different place now, but Judy worried it wasn't going to heaven. They buried the possum real quick and then arrived at the Contention Woods parking lot. Already in the parking lot were five cars, the four we expected, plus Krista Krinkelhoff's minivan. Judy freaked out a little because she saw her mom's minivan and she was out past her curfew. Liz and Shadow promised to shove Judy into a ditch if they saw Krista Krinkelhoff, which assuaged Judy's worries. 
An old man wearing a state forest ranger uniform jumped out and scared the girls. He introduced himself as Woodrow, or Buzz for short, and asked them to fill out some forms in the shack. Shadow whispered to the rest to not use their real names. Ash Hornbeam walked over to investigate the bush after seeing the man's face disappear back behind it, his axe in hand. He heard rustling and a chattering sound, so he ran back to find Jeremy Pettymore, who was standing at their campsite, still frustrated at the lack of pre-prepared firewood. Ash sprinted back and squawked about a man in a bush by a log, making animal noises. Jeremy readied the gun he found, and Ash led him to the bush. It was still rustling with movement, and the animal-like noises were still audible. Ash picked up a long stick and poked at the bush. Stepping back from the bush was a naked human man, covered in scratches and cuts, some of which were still bleeding. He looked at the boys with huge eyes and froze. Jeremy took out the Polaroid of the Polaroids. They could tell this was one of the people who'd gone missing, though they couldn't quite read his name. The boys called out to him, suggested he put on pants, and offered to help with a first aid kit. The man scampered up to them hastily. Jeremy pointed the gun at him to no effect. The man pushed his fingers together, made sad puppy dog eyes, and mewled. Ash and Jeremy discussed what to do with the animal man as he sniffed the air and headed to their campsite. The boys tried to red rover him, but the situation finally sunk into Ash. He freaked out, backed away, and tripped backwards on a log. Jeremy tried to stop the man alone, but wasn't able to. Both boys had the realization, though, that this man did not act or run like a normal human man. He was too fast. He was crouched, and he used his front legs or uh, arms to aid his movement toward their campsite. The boys ran back to their spot, still holding their weapons. When they returned, they saw the man hunched over their bag with food, going to town on the snacks they brought. Jeremy cried out for his little Smokies. After a small tussle between the boys and the naked man, Ash kicked away the can of Smokies, kneed him in the face, and full Nelsoned him down into the mud, immobilizing him. Jeremy took a rope, tied him to a tree, and tried to calm him down with more Smokies. Ash used some hand sanitizer and headed back down the trail to get Buzz. As Ash headed back to the shack, the trees around him began to warp. The trail became nearly non-existent, and he was suddenly looking at a thicket of woods instead of the trail in front of him. The sun was going down, Ash was all by himself, and he had no fucking clue where he was. Ken Krinkelhoff walked down the trail and made it to the usual campsite. When he arrived, he saw Jeremy waving little Smokies in front of the face of a naked, bloody man tied up to a tree. Ken shouted as he entered the clearing, startling Jeremy Pettymore. Ken asked if the man could hear him and if he was all right, and the man made some more chattering noises. Jeremy indicated this was one of the people who'd gone missing in the woods. Ash was on his way back to the ranger station to get Buzz. In the meantime, Jeremy was trying to tame the animal man with tiny meat fellows. Ken realized that if Ash was going from the campsite to the ranger shack, they, they should have crossed paths, but they didn't. Ken called out for Ash, but stopped when he looked back at the man and no longer saw humanity. Only animalistic intent behind the eyes of this bloody, muddy, tied-up, naked human body. Ken freaked out and backed away, claiming the man wasn't a person. Jeremy tried to convince him the man was still a man, but Ken wasn't convinced. 
He went back to calling out for Ash, his panic rising. Jeremy wasn't sure why Ken was scared of this man, whom he had named Rusty. Shadow, Liz, and Judy were in the Contention Woods parking lot talking to Buzz. Judy worried about her mom and wondered if she'd also gone missing. Shadow and Liz calmed her down by suggesting that perhaps Chris's car was stolen, and so it wasn't actually her that drove it to the woods. Now back in the shack, Buzz asked the young ladies to come over and take care of business so they can be on their way. They wondered if they should trust the man, but decided to have their pictures taken anyway. Glancing around the shack, they saw various ranger equipment and the bulletin board of missing people, as well as a massive jug of hand sanitizer on the windowsill. Judy furiously pumped hand sanitizer into her hand, so much so that it overflowed onto the floor. Liz looked at Judy appalled and asked Buzz if they could have a machete to protect themselves from something killing people, like maybe Judy's mom. Judy freaked out and started licking the hand sanitizer from her hands. Buzz offered the hand sanitizer to the other two girls. Shadow refused, but Liz put her hand out, and as Buzz started to pump out the hand sanitizer, she tried to pull her hand away, but plenty still landed on her, so she unhappily rubbed it in. As Buzz pinned all their information and pictures on the not-missing side of the board, the girls noticed a slight trickle of blood going down the back of his neck, staining his uniform. Ash looked around at the ever-darkening trees surrounding him as the sun went down. He heard a noise and saw a tree emitting a bright light from a hollow point. He looked around suspiciously, saw a tripwire between him and the tree, and carefully avoided it as he walked up to the light emanating knot. It was so bright, Ash couldn't see what was inside, but he knew something was deep in there. Ash pushed his arm into the arm-shaped hole up to his elbow, felt around, found nothing, pushed in deeper, and when he attempted to pull his arm out, he felt a great pain on his skin, like he was noodling a razor-sharp catfish all the way from elbow to fingertip. Ash pulled out about a centimeter, and the bit of arm revealed only raw muscle and tendons. It lacked skin completely. He realized he was trapped, and for the first time in his life, Ash Hornbeam had no idea what to do. Shadow told Buzz he was bleeding from his head. She offered to trade her first aid kit for his machete, and he gladly accepted. She grabbed the kit in a vial and patched him up while discreetly taking a sample of his blood. The group then took stock of their possessions and headed to their designated camping spot to perform the ritual. Upon arrival, there were no rocks around the designated fire pit in order to keep the fire contained. This was very concerning to Judy. Liz went to find some rocks, and Shadow swayed in the wind to a tune with nature. Judy, worried about her mom and the pond water she just used to brush her teeth, suffered a bout of insanity. She saw reality warp. Shadow blended into the trees, and the ground became the sky. Judy promptly ran into the woods in her footy pajamas. Shadow sighed and followed with her machete, leaping and dancing as she went. Liz's reality glitched and she suddenly found herself lost in an unrecognizable part of the woods. Behind some rocks, she saw a fit-looking bald man in his 40s walking in circles, waving his hands, and talking to himself. 
all on the other side of a thick line of white powder. A branch-like sigil was carved into every tree in sight. Liz tried to get away quietly, but she stepped on a stick, and he beckoned her over to his little camp with some semi-intelligible, mostly English-accented instructions. She went over partly because she found him attractive. He was concerned about two things, the sky turning and keeping the lady in the wood away. A tattoo of a stylized H was slightly hidden on the back of his neck. After a little more discussion, Liz decided she was too worried by the situation and didn't trust him. She ran away as he shouted she was definitely going to get go. Lost in the woods, Liz Lonklin stumbled upon Ash Hornbeam, stuck in a tree with tears streaming down his face. They were understandably surprised to see each other. Ash warned her about the tripwire just in time, but the helpless situation caused him to lose it and pull his arm out a little bit more. The loss of skin was staggering. He threw up out of sheer panic. Liz dipped out, shouting for help, leaving Ash alone with the tree once again, staring at his lacerated, dripping arm. Judy ran haphazardly through the woods, but thankfully stopped just before a suspicious-looking pile of leaves. Shadow almost danced directly into the dubious detritus, but Judy pulled her out of the way, revealing the ten-foot-deep pit underneath the leaf pile. Shaken, but not yet broken, the two headed back to their campsite. They didn't see Liz, but they did see a raccoon sitting there, eating just like a person would. The little trash panda indicated that hand sanitizer should not be used, might be deadly. Judy looked into the raccoon's eyes, saw the soul of a human, and decided to trust it. Shadow tottered along with T-Rex arms imitating the raccoon as the trio headed back to the entrance of the woods. After searching through the woods in the dwindling twilight, Liz finally found the trail, along with Jeremy Pettymore and Ken Krinkelhoff at their campsite. She saw them talking to a feral man, feeding him little winkies. She told them Ash was in trouble with a tree while Jeremy fed Rusty more smokes. They debated whether or not to take Rusty along for the search. Ken finally agreed to it, and Liz Lonklin led the party. Shadow, Judy, and the raccoon made their way back to the parking lot and were confronted by Judy's mom's voice coming out of the shack. Judy instinctively ran to get more hand sanitizer from her mom and succeeded in doing so despite the raccoon physically trying to stop her. Krista told the girls that Buzz had asked her to watch the shack while he went to investigate an argument. The raccoon indicated they should get the fuck out of Dodge, but Shadow wanted to go back and get Liz. She persuaded Krista to help her find Liz. Judy could stay in the shack with the raccoon. When Shadow and Krista skipped into the forest together, Judy hit the restroom. There, she saw the limp, neatly folded body of Ranger Buzz on the floor. Ken Krinkelhoff, Jeremy Pettymore, Liz Lonklin, and Rusty walked through the woods looking for Ash Hornbeam, whose arm was stuck in a tree. The sun had now gone down and they were in total darkness. Too far off the trail, the group began to realize none of them knew where they were. They walked deeper into the woods and eventually saw through the moonlight a picture frame hanging on a tree. Flashback. To Ken Krinkelhoff a couple years ago. He and his friends were out in the woods on their annual outing to look for old Madge. 
He popped away to pee behind a tree, and as he looked up from his stream of urine, he saw a frame, like of a painting, hanging there in the woods. It looked like nothing was in the frame. Ken approached and noticed that somewhere along the edge of this frame, something didn't line up, as if what was behind the frame wasn't the same as what he could see through it. He strafed to the side to get a better look and saw that beyond the frame was a cabin. Ken walked up to this frame to put his hand through it, but at the last second noticed a tripwire he was about to step on. Ken jumped back, grabbed a rock, and threw it at the tripwire. A giant wooden spear came flying through the canvas of the painting and stabbed directly into a tree, just missing Ken. He rushed back to the camp while convincing himself it wasn't real. Flashback forward to Jeremy, Liz, Ken, and Rusty standing in the clearing looking at the weird frame. Ken yelled out for everyone to stop and not go any closer. He pointed at the ground and next to the frame, there was a tripwire. He tossed a small log onto the tripwire and a massive spear shot through the frame directly into a nearby tree. Ken shared his memory with the rest of the party and as they all looked this frame, they could see a cabin in the woods through the spear-made hole. Ken snapped, grabbed the spear, and raced toward the cabin. As Jeremy yelled at him to stop, Ken stepped on a pile of leaves covering a hole and disappeared into the ground. Ash Hornbeam stood in the woods, terrified. His arm stuck halfway into the hollow of a tree. Part of his arm that he could see had been stripped of every layer of flesh. The sun finished going down and Ash stood alone in the moonlight. He heard the snap of a branch nearby and out of the trees approached a man in a black suit, white shirt, and bolo tie. He was a fit man in his late 20s or early 30s with a glorious mustache and pants that were a bit too tight. He flashed an FBI badge and introduced himself as Agent Kevin. He asked Ash why he was out in the woods. Ash said he and some friends come out to the woods every year to camp and look for old Madge, a woman in the woods from local legend. Kevin cursed, thanked him, and with a trembling hand pressed a gun to the back of Ash's head. Acting on pure instinct, Ash reached into his pocket, pulled out a lighter and some firecrackers, lit them with one hand, and held them against Kevin's head. Kevin lowered his gun, grabbed the fireworks, and threw them away. On closer inspection, Kevin recognized Ash as a local kid who was celebrated in the community after he defended his home from a couple burglars. Flashback to a younger Ash Hornbeam sitting on his front porch wrapped in a crisis blanket, talking to a contention police officer. Ash had heard noises in his basement, and it sounded like two men's voices, one tall and skinny, the other short and fat. Ash thought they were after his dad's coin collection. Flashback to a few hours before this, to Ash home alone watching TV. On the screen is a commercial for a CD player Ash desperately wanted but couldn't afford. So he hatched a plan to steal some of his dad's rare coin collection. He tried typing in birthdays into the lockbox that contained the coins, and his birthday worked. 
Ash took a handful, roughly $600 worth of coins. Flashback forward to the officer asking Ash about the paint cans hanging from strings. Ash said he set up traps and tripwires and told an epic story of utilizing these common objects to hassle the robbers until they gave up and left. Flash a bit more forward to Ash carrying his new CD player with him everywhere he went. Flash fully back forward to Ke- <laughs> to Kevin returning to the trapped Ash along with a woman wearing a black suit, white shirt, and a black tie. She held a machete and she chanted while she rubbed a hand on the blade. The woman smiled a cold, vacant smile behind asymmetrical bangs covering one of her eyes. Agent Kevin introduced her as Agent Karen and she immediately lifted the machete above her head and brought it down through Ash's elbow. Out of shock, Ash stepped back, looked down, and saw his arm had been cut off. The end of it was completely cauterized, and the skin around the stump began to grow back as he watched. Agent Karen said nothing, just smiled, turned around, and walked away. Agent Kevin put his arm around Ash and led him to a black sedan sitting next to a four-wheeler in the middle of the woods. Through some brush and trees, they could see a cabin. Shadow and Krista Krinkelhoff walked down the trail and Shadow sang a song about death. The sun finished setting and they continued to walk lit only by a flashlight. Krista said she saw Liz and shot off with the flashlight into the woods, followed by a giggling shadow. But then Shadow watched the flashlight go completely dark and felt a rope tighten around her ankle. She was hoisted into the air, upside down, hanging by one foot. Krista turned on the flashlight under her chin like it was spooky story time. She said, My darling, it is certifiably unfortunate your demise is seemingly necessary despite my finding your demeanor so appropriate for your kind. From your personal hymns, I can assume and do hope that a lack of existence is your preference? Shadow whispered to herself, Finally! And she watched a long silver tendril grow from the back of Krista Krinkelhoff's neck, and then another, and another, and another. The limbs extended toward Shadow's pinnated body, and the camera panned down to show the long shadows play out the grisly scene. One of the shiny tentacles sliced into the soft tissue on the back of her neck. Another snapped her head forward, and a third reached in, gripped her spinal cord, and ripped it out of her body, delivering shadow to her finish line, her goal, her lack of a destination. And finally, she felt nothing. The sun had set, and as it began to rain outside, Judy Krinkelhoff stood at the doorway to the bathroom and stared at the lifeless, folded, crumpled body of Buzz. She could tell by looking around there'd been a tussle, and she found a stick of her mom's favorite brand of chapstick behind the toilet. The raccoon stood in the doorway, motioning to get the fuck out of there. Judy followed the raccoon into the rain, into the darkness, 
and a lightning bolt flashed in the distance. It was just bright enough to illuminate a blood-covered Krista Krinkelhoff walking directly toward her. The raccoon at Judy's side shivered and tried to communicate, tugging at Judy's arm, but eventually ran away when Judy went to help her mother. Judy guided her back to the shack to clean up her blood-drenched mother, but when she closed the door, Judy felt a pinch on the back of her neck. She turned and saw her mom's body had crumpled to the ground, and standing in front of her was a small one-inch silver sphere with metallic arms grounding itself in the walls and ceiling of the shack. Shiny tendrils reached out, snapped Judy's neck forward, and ripped out her spine, shoving itself into her spinal column. Judy Krinkelhoff was no longer Judy Krinkelhoff. She was an objective-based entity, and its current objective was to collect as many bodies as possible. After falling into the hidden hole under the pile of leaves, Ken Krinkelhoff slid on his back down an earthy, viscous slide for some time until he finally landed in a pit of cold dirt and perfect darkness. He was in a small crawl space with what looked like floor supports, though they were translucent tubes filled with a squamous black ooze that traveled down from the cabin into the ground below. Ken also saw a door above him and he cautiously listened for any sound on the other side. Ash Hornbeam followed agents Kevin and Karen to the black sedan and four-wheeler hidden in the brush. There was another agent in the back seat wearing the same black suit with a white shirt. The man in his early 30s had buzzed blonde hair and introduced himself as Agent Kyle. As Ash looked out ahead of him, he saw the cabin in a small clearing. Next to the cabin sat a small shipping container and a large yellow excavator. A moat surrounded the clearing. Ash saw movement just outside the moat. Liz, Jeremy, and Ken stopped to talk. Ken picked up a small log, threw it, and a long wooden spear flew in their direction and hit a tree. Ken grabbed the spear, took off running, fell into the ground, and disappeared. Kevin turned back to Ash and broke his mind with two sentences. The woods are full of traps, and Ol' Madge, the local legend the boys searched for annually, was real. Ash couldn't handle it. Something snapped. He bailed out of the car, ran, and disappeared into the night. Jeremy and Liz stood in the dark of the woods when they saw Ken disappear into the ground, and it began to rain. They looked forward. The cabin lights turned on, and they noticed a storage container and a big yellow excavator next to the cabin, all encircled by a moat. The pair moved forward to investigate the cabin and found the moat was about five feet across. Jeremy threw some Smokies onto the other side and held Rusty's feet as he lunged across to grab the small sausage boys. Liz crossed Rusty's back without issue, but Jeremy and Rusty fell into the fish-filled moat. They crawled out near Liz, a wet mess. The trio approached the cabin slowly. Liz stumbled up the stairs to look through the window and she saw strange lab equipment and translucent tubes that ran down into the floorboards filled with a squamous black viscous goo. Papers were scattered across tables and a desk and in the corner sat a large wooden trunk. 
Jeremy edged toward the storage unit, opened the door, and saw on one side a closet full of clothes, and on the other side lined up against the wall the bodies of roughly 15 people hung limply on hooks from a pole in the back of each neck. Jeremy turned and screamed at Liz they needed to get the fuck out of there, and the pair bolted across the moat. As they ran, Liz heard a click under her foot. She tried to stop in time, but a giant metal claw swung down from the branch above and removed her head from her shoulders. Jeremy knew she was dead. He kept running. Ash Hornbeam also ran through the dark, rainy night. He found the trail, and in the distance, he saw Judy Krinkelhoff walking toward him. Ash grabbed her arm and kept running, pulling her with him. They arrived at his usual campsite. Ash fell to his knees, gasped for air, and told Judy her brother disappeared into a hole in the ground. Judy seemed unworried by this news and suggested finding some large rocks. Ash continued to panic and freak out, and Judy went to go find some rocks. Ash considered his options, but decided to stay with Judy for now, since he did have a crush on her. Judy found a huge rock, walked up behind Ash, and crushed his head in. Ken Krinkelhoff crouched in the crawl space under the cabin, lit only by his flashlight. He gently put his ear to the door above him and heard a muffled yell in the distance. It was Jeremy screaming for Liz to get the fuck out of here. Ken poked his head up through the door. This was not a cabin. It was a lab. The same translucent tubes full of black ooze were all around the room going into the floor, and Ken saw the tubes were coming from small coffin-shaped boxes. There was a desk littered with papers, a bulletin board, and a large wooden trunk. Ken heard a guttural scream cut short and looked out the window at the exact moment Liz Lonklin was stopped dead in her tracks by the decapitation from a massive metal claw. Having convinced himself that what he just saw could not have been real, Ken turned back around and investigated the scene. He found articles of organization for a new business called Cole's Orphanage, New School Under Modern Etiquette. All the other papers were blueprints for an odd-looking gun, which seemed to have been recently completed. There were also plans for small metal spheres, one inch in diameter, which were being placed into small human bodies. Ken took a wary glance at the little coffins. He opened one, and a black viscous goo began pouring out of it onto the table and floor. Inside the coffin, there sat the body of a two-year-old that was not quite fully human-looking, as if it was being 3D printed and was not yet finished, like a face with a plastic bag over it. Ken freaked the fuck out and ran for the front door of the cabin. Jeremy Pettymore ran desperately through the woods and eventually found Judy Krinkelhoff walking toward him. Judy said she didn't know what to do since the other girls had left her alone. The two decided to head back to the ranger shack. Jeremy took the lead. Judy pulled out the machete she was hiding and lunged at the Pettymore boy, but she slipped on the muddy rocks below, fell face first onto the machete, and split her skull wide open, enough for Jeremy to see a small, one inch in diameter silver sphere in the middle of her head. 
black ooze began to leak onto the trail, and Jeremy ran. Ken stumbled out of the cabin and saw three figures approaching. Through the rain and darkness, a lightning strike in the distance revealed the trio, all wearing black suits with white shirts, two with black ties, and one with a bolo tie. The tall one had buzz blonde hair, the man with the bolo tie was shorter, sported tight pants and a thick mustache, and the last was a woman, smiling a cold, vacant smile behind asymmetrical bangs covering one of her eyes. They saw Ken, and the woman began chanting. Ken turned to rush back into the cabin. His arm reached out for the door, and his hand phased into and through the wood. He felt an aberrant push in the back, and his body, too, was forced into the door. Ken Krinkelhoff was trapped halfway in and halfway out the entrance and exit of this cabin. His mind worked just long enough to watch the suits ransack the lab. One grabbed a bucket of water filled with fish to splash and repel the ooze. The other two took some papers and the trunk and they left, but not before the woman chanted once more and ignited the cabin in unnatural flames. Ken Krinkelhoff died burning, part of the cabin in the Contention Woods. Jeremy Pettymore, now all alone, ran back to the ranger shack in the parking lot. He got to the Bronco with the keys he had nabbed earlier, but the car wouldn't start. He got out, and in the heavy rain and darkness of night, he ran down the road toward town. Behind Jeremy, the black sedan drove furiously into view, and behind it, the four-wheeler. As they approached, the four-wheeler overtook the sedan and pulled up next to Jeremy as he desperately sprinted. Jeremy looked over, and the man who drove this ATV was pretty fit for his early 40s, and he wore a black suit with a white shirt and a bolo tie below a face with a badass mustache. He recognized the man as John Lee Pettymore III, his second cousin. The two came to a stop, and Jeremy waved and tried to hop on the four-wheeler. John! John! Uncle John! Uncle John! John stopped, saw Jeremy, and his heart sank. Uncle, Uncle John, thank God you're here. What's wrong, Uncle John? John Lee Pettymore Third lifted a pistol and put it to his second cousin's head. Jeremy Pettymore, 14 years old, closed his eyes tight, shaking. He felt the gun against his head, trembling. And then, there was nothing. Now, back to the contention, boys. Clark Bishop, Keith Vigna, and John Lee Pettymore IV and the body of John Lee Pettymore III woke up, bodies fully in shock, ears ringing, bellies weirdly satisfied, and an uncomfortably savory smell in their nostrils as their eyes adjusted to see the inside of a mausoleum splattered in blood. They remembered everything that had happened to them before, but they seemed to be back in the same physical and mental state they were in just after meeting the chanting, cloaked old Clark. According to Clark's watch, it was the day of the funeral at 1 p.m. again. 
Keith ripped his shirt off and found the word Marvin that had been burned into his chest had been crossed out. The other names, Tildy on their dominant palms, Drew on their backs, and Maggie on the bottom of their left feet were still branded on each of their bodies the same as before. They wondered whether Marvin would still be dead and theorized that they'd have to work their way through the other names as well. Would they have to kill Maggie and Drew? And how would they find Tildy? John called Rosemary. She picked up and he immediately hung up. John recalled the vision he'd had the last time they were at the cemetery. Keith told the others about the visions he had while wearing his father's watch. Clark suggested calling Maggie and reporting that he'd successfully killed Stan Manstein. But first, he tried to summon old Clark. He only succeeded in driving himself into a rage, and he charged John. When they finally sorted themselves out, the CPD-3 exited the mausoleum and again encountered the old lady, who freaked out. She'd already seen them leave the tomb earlier. The gang of risen ex-cops scared her off and discussed the implications of this news. They considered just waiting around for their next iterations to come out of the mausoleum, but decided instead to call Maggie. The vision Clark received when he tried to summon himself became instantly clear in his mind. A candlelit stone room contained a hooded figure scribbling furiously into an ornately decorated book made of strange leather. This figure was an elderly, decrepit Clark Bishop. There was a knock on the door and a voice called, My Lord? My Lord! As the door opened up, cut to a silver accord flying down the highway driven by a frantic Maggie Cook. He saw her call him on her phone. Clark blinked away this unnatural vision and suddenly the phone in his pocket began to buzz. Clark answered and Maggie told him to get to the parking lot immediately to meet her. John and Keith joined even though they disagreed with Clark about trusting her. Maggie sped into the parking lot and pulled up next to them. She tasked them with taking out a man named Bruce Robin as he had gone fully insane and was a danger to the world at large. She was shook by the appearance of John Lee Pettymore III, and they quickly explained that whole situation. She did not take it well, and they had to calm her down. Clark grabbed the burner phone from his car and saw a text that read, your parents owned an artifact of immense power, too much power for them to be trusted with. He responded, what artifact? Maggie asked her former co-workers to murder Bruce Robin, owner of Bar Corp and former business partner of Keith's brother, Ferguson Beans. John began to question Maggie on how she was still alive, but the ringing of her cell phone cut off Maggie's reply. As Clark rejoined the group, he noted a second cell phone vibrating from within the chief's car. On the call, Maggie berated Leon, told him to do his fucking job. He needed to knock the dust off his knuckles because he knew what needed to be done. She hung up and explained she never died 
just had to disappear. She implied the body they'd found in the remains of her house was a decoy. Maggie tossed the officers a manila envelope, reminded them she was counting on this, and drove away. The manila envelope had a manila folder inside labeled Operation Hole Puncher, Bar Corp. It contained information on Bar Corp, including its three subsidiaries, Jesus Christ Ministries, Health and Rehabilitation Unlimited, and The Learning Center. It also showed finances for the last five years and profits had been steadily rising. The previous year, they made over $850 million and paid zero in taxes, and they were projected to make over $2 billion in the current year. It was also noted that after being declared deceased, Ferguson Beans' majority share was split between his wife Stacy, daughter Frances, and the mill on the other side of the city, which secured Bruce Robin as the majority owner. John mentioned he recently sold that cocaine they'd found in the storage units to Jesus Christ Ministries, a church camp just outside the city. Clark told John they saw Marvin Glass split his body in half to reveal a silver ball inside his head. John explained his working theory was that all the officers might be ball. He explained that upon the death of his original body, he burst out and went into John Lee Kevinmore's body. He believed this was possible because he was just a little silver ball. Clark described the actions of Rosemary in her final moments inside the flooded glass office. John asserted her turn on Marvin may have been due to her infatuation with Marvin's son, Jermaine Glass, the man who disappeared when he used the odd-looking gun. After a quick confession from Keith detailing the murder of his own brother by proxy as well as the first-hand murder of Bruce Robbins' mother, the former contention police officers traveled to Robin's home address downtown in the city, hoping to find personal files and or Bruce Robin himself. However, when they arrived, they found police tape across the door of Robin's brownstone. The residence was wrecked and human excrement was strewn throughout. The stench was overwhelming. Spray paint covered the walls. It repeated the same number pattern over and over. 811-818-95201-311-811119. John checked upstairs. His hair stood on end with the feeling of a heavy presence. In a room deemed to be a former office, the same set of numbers was carved into the walls again and again and again on every surface in the room. Clark investigated what he thought might once have been the master bedroom and found various sleeping pallets. It was clear as many as 20 people had been sleeping in this room at one time. John called the city PD under the cover of having tracked a drifter to this home. He requested any information they'd uncovered at the scene. The city officer shared that Bruce Robin went missing two days ago. His neighbors spoke about how crazy Bruce had been recently. He'd had all kinds of people coming in and out at all times of the day and night. The steep decline of Bruce Robin had been a rapid transformation. On their way out to the car, they noted again the sickly green hue of the city around them. 
The putrid smell, the oppressive grays, the bloated and lifeless faces of the people on the streets. And in contrast to all this, the beautiful blooming flowers on every corner and from every crack in the sidewalk. John asked a passerby why he was so pallid and corpse-like. The man explained that work at Barcorp had been hard as of late, though they'd just been given some days off. He felt the color was actually probably better now than it had been recently. Barcorp was, surprisingly, paying all employees time and a half to take two weeks off. John asked why a big corporation like that would pay its staff to take time off. The man wasn't sure, but it might have to do with the new CEO. Bruce Robin announced he would renovate every building and provide everyone a livable wage, benefits, and better working hours. Clark asked what exactly Barcorp does. Do they sell something? The man asked Clark to pull anything out of his pockets. Clark produced a pin, and the man said Barcorp made it. Sure enough, the pin read Barcorp there along the side. The party hatched a plan. Keith would call Bruce Robin directly under the guise of commiseration over the death of Ferguson Beans. But a woman named Winifred Wirth answered for Bruce Robin's office. Keith explained Ferguson Beans was his brother, to which Winifred expressed condolences. Keith requested to speak to Bruce to ask him some questions. Winifred promised she would pass along the questions to Bruce for him. Keith pressed her he'd hoped to have a conversation with his late brother's business partner. She insisted. While Bruce was currently in the office, he was currently unavailable. Keith found out Bruce's office was on the 17th floor and hung up. He then called the number for Ferguson's office, but he was greeted again by Winifred. Keith tried to disguise his identity as Ferguson. Keith, caught in the act, just hung up. The group decided since they knew where Bruce Robin was, they would head that way and barge in as officers of the law to question him. On the way to Bar Corp, the fellas noticed both flowers and sickness everywhere. After a diversion to acquire blue windbreakers, coveralls, and fancy hats, they pulled up to the 17-story building and walked through the revolving doors into a massive foyer with marble columns. A security guard and a receptionist stood at a large marble desk, behind which hung a giant mural of Washington crossing the Delaware, but all the guns were replaced by flowers. The building directory showed only 12 of the 17 floors. John fast-talked the security guard, and the group found their way into the only elevator that actually went all the way to the 17th floor. On 17, they were met straight away by a small older woman with a shock of white hair. Winifred Worth wore a white satin blouse with black vertical stripes on the left-hand side, high-waisted pants with horizontal stripes on the right-hand side, white platform shoes with studded soles, and interconnected silver rings across her right hand. She knew they were the disgraced police officers from contention, and she demanded to know their business. John attempted to persuade her to let them into Bruce Robbins' office. She was not convinced. John's solution was to push this 71-year-old lady to the ground and holler for the others to run past. John called an ambulance for her and gave Keith's name as the caller. Keith picked the lock to get into Bruce's office, which 
was in a state of disarray. A large bookcase had been ransacked. A conference table was absolutely covered in binders, files, and papers. Behind an equally cluttered desk, a panicked Bruce Robin paced back and forth and muttered numbers to himself. He wore a disheveled but well-tailored suit, and his hair was a disaster. Bruce greeted them, and the officers asked him about the numbers. He denied he was even saying numbers and became aggravated when pushed. They asked if he knew who Keith was. While Bruce considered this, they noticed his bleeding knuckles and the silver ring with a flat blank top on his middle finger, exactly like the one they found at Jim Cook's house. Keith revealed the ring he had tied around his neck with a shoestring, and Bruce's eyes went wide with fear and excitement. He asked if they were with Myriad. Keith said yes and put the ring on. Bruce stared off above their heads through a curtain of unwashed hair and began chanting, Tawil Alakol. Clark leapt across the desk, tackle punched him, and knocked a hidden pistol out of his hand. But Bruce kept chanting. Keith tried to stomp on his arm to take the ring, but Robin used the momentum to pull Keith to the ground. John tried and failed to gag the chanting man with his own tie. Bruce threw Clark off of him and reached the fallen gun, chanting the whole time. Keith instinctively shot the once again armed CEO to protect Clark, but it only wounded the businessman. John demanded Bruce stop chanting and went to check on Winifred. However, Bruce Robin completed the chant and promptly shot himself in the head. Keith took the ring off Bruce's limp finger. When he stood back up, he noticed John was writing numbers on the desk in blood. Clark stopped him, but John strangely wasn't aware he'd been writing any numbers. Suddenly, the doors to the office burst open, and the trio realized they no longer stood in the places they'd just been standing. They were stark naked and drenched in Bruce Robbins' blood. The numbers 21821351815291 were scrawled in dark red fluid on every surface of the office, and the gang had no recollection of their actions. When the doors to the office busted open, three police officers barged in as John, Clark, and Keith became aware of their abruptly changed surroundings. Clark recognized the officer at the back, an attractive older man with gray hair as Leon Simpson. Leon dropped two duffel bags on the ground and expeditiously executed the other two officers from behind. He then marched back out into the hallway and fired a single additional shot. Clark told the other two this newcomer was from the Circle of Knowledge. Leon came back, donned headphones and gloves, turned up some outlaw country, and began to clean the scene. Inside one of the duffel bags, Clark found cleaning supplies and three clean City PD uniforms. Clark, John, and Keith cleaned themselves and suited up. Leon pulled papers from Bruce's desk and stamped them with a copy of Bruce's signature. These papers signed Bruce's share of Bar Corp over to the mill on the other side of the city. 
Among Bruce's things, John found a note. It read, She broke me open, and all new things have the power to escort change in the future of good in order to break the cycle and find fulfillment in an unquestioning goodness that breaks the relentless tether holding this lie of a world withstanding itself. I can smell my past. I can hear my future. I am joy. I am destruction. I am pure. Death to myriad. 8118895201311181119 They recognized the number from Bruce's house and finally broke the cipher. They found the number spelled Harriet Marks, a name they hadn't come across. Clark received a text on the mysterious burner phone that read the book your parents died for is still hidden in an undisclosed location. He texted back, what book? Where? A quick search for Harriet Marks revealed she was a pro-union activist studying at City State University who committed suicide in her dorm room just four days before on December 2nd. Leon said they would go investigate her after they cleaned up. The group heard sirens and made a run for Leon's car. After a destructive chase and a lethal getaway, Keith noticed Clark and John zoning out, muttering the number sequence. Keith described to Leon what happened in Bruce Robbins' office and what they'd worked out about the cipher. Leon showed Keith a picture of the inside of Harriet Marx's dorm room. Spray painted all over the walls was a third sequence. 152251819558, the code for overseer. Leon evangelized. Clark is more than a man. He's a god. He's the savior. A prophecy maintains Clark will go back in time and found the circle of knowledge. John and Clark came to in a parking lot on CSU campus with Leon and Keith staring at them. Keith informed them they had just been chanting Bruce Robbins' numbers. Then he handed them the folder Leon had given him. Inside were pictures of a crime scene in a dorm room. Numbers were spray painted on every surface. In the cipher, it read, Overseer. Clark bluntly asked Leon if he believed Clark was the overseer and was met with an equally blunt yes. Leon went on. He believed Clark would eventually go back in time and found the circle of knowledge. The contention officers informed Leon that an old Clark had been poking and prodding at their lives recently. Leon seemed curious and asked them to explain further. They recalled the time old Clark warned Drew something terrible would happen before the chief's house exploded, and how old Clark had branded names into their skin with magic. Leon proposed the group split up. John and Keith could head to the dorm room. He and Clark would go to the administration building. Leon explained while they're not sure what it is, it seemed to transfer from person to person. Bruce Robin got it from Harriet Marks, and Harriet Marks got it from the overseer, based on the numbers in her dorm room. They needed to know why Clark had done this. Clark reminded them it's not him they're talking about exactly, so maybe they could call old Clark Clarkold to avoid confusion. With that, 
the groups split off. Leon began to drive away with Clark in the back seat, and Clark noticed Leon reach for a gun that looked like the tranquilizer gun he'd given Clark to coerce Agent Trent Chad. Before Leon could fire, Clark kicked the back of his seat, and a trank dart stuck in the ceiling of the car. After a short struggle, Clark wrestled the gun away from Leon. He held the gun to the back of Leon's head with a strong, what the fuck? Leon explained he had hoped to knock Clark out. He was terrified something would happen to Clark like a stray bullet. If Clark died, that could mean the world ends. Leon felt he needed to protect Clark at all costs, but Clark argued if he really was the overseer and he did go back to found the circle of knowledge, then this must all work out. In fact, he might be bulletproof now. In a pretty threatening tone, Clark reminded Leon he might be the one needing protection, as he didn't recall an old Leon running around as Clark Old's right-hand man. Leon replied with a sigh. He said it was time they really needed to go to Calm Comfy Campground, but Leon had been coerced. First, they could put Clark's invincibility theory to the test and finish out the investigation at CSU. So Leon Simpson swung the car back around and headed to the administration building they'd first set out for before the failed kidnapping attempt. John and Keith walked through the holiday decoration riddled CSU campus to Giff's house, Harriet Mark's dormitory. The lobby was dark and vacant. John hopped on the computer behind the front desk and the desktop background was a promotional flyer for The Jingle Ball, scheduled for that evening, December 6th at CSU. The poster read, follow the scavenger hunt to make your way to The Jingle Ball. On the computer, John found the directory and discovered Harriet Marks and her roommate, Amelia Locke, lived in 328 across the hall from a show dorm for tours to prospective students. They called the elevator and the light that emanated from the open doors revealed countless unique number sequences scribbled all over the walls and floor of this building in materials ranging from spray paint to bodily fluids. And inside the elevator, the limp corpse of a student was slumped over itself. Her face was amorphous, smashed repeatedly until she was unrecognizable. Back in the administration building, the campus seemed absolutely empty. It looked like Christmas itself had thrown up the decorations that adorned everything in sight. The lights of the administration building were off, but down the hall stood two figures. One mumbled a sequence of letters and numbers interrupted by desperate appeals requesting physical violence. In their city PD uniforms, the pair approached under the guise of officers looking for the records office. In the elevator, John Lee Pettymore began to mumble and pulled a sharpie from his pocket. He put the marker to the elevator wall and wrote the familiar cipher of Bruce Robin. The third floor was similarly dark and silent, and the doors to both 328 Gifts House and the show dorm room across the hall were open. The show dorm room was covered 
in numbers, like every other surface in this building, and there was an out-of-place Casio keyboard in the middle of the room with a sheet of music on the stand. However, instead of notes on the staff, the sheet music is made of little cartoon pictures. Seven eggs, a golf ball, a cat, a demon, and another egg. Keith pushed on a few of the keys, and the electronic piano was set to make the sound of jingle bells. Keith put the silly sheet music in his pocket and continued investigating the display dorm. A window looked out on the overly festive campus. In the middle of the quad was a large old bell tower. Keith ignored that and found a flyer for the jingle ball, and written on the back was a math equation. The solution to this problem was 330, the number of the room in which he stood. Keith ignored that and headed across the hall to Harriet Marx's room with the mumbling John in tow. In 328 Gifts House, Keith found trophies for riddle-solving competitions on the desk of Amelia Locke, a desk which clearly lacked a laptop. The charging cord and various USB accoutrements wreathed a rectangular negative space on its surface. On scrap paper, Keith found a handwritten note from Amelia that outlined her views on the suicide of her roommate. She clearly did not believe Harriet was suicidal, and she wrote she had a plan to figure out what actually happened. Keith went through Harriet's things and found a tucked away sticky note with a two-point to-do list. The first, research most unethical corporation in the city. The second, who is the overseer? Clark and Leon approached the two figures in the hall outside the admin office. A short and slight freshman jumped up and poked a tall, well-dressed student with perfect hair. The little one begged to be hit, and the tall one calmly declined. Defeated, the short dude ran to a wall, slammed his head against it, and yelled that doing it himself just wasn't the same. Clark and Leon approached, and the tall student calmly asked for a moment as he stared up at a banner above the office window that read, At the end of the tenth day, my true love had given me blank gifts. Leon ignored the scene entirely and entered the unlocked administration office. The crazed, small student requested pain from Clark, who asked why the kid would want to be hit so badly. The student said he would love it, and then suddenly started to spout some numbers off. Clark asked about the numbers. The student didn't recall saying any numbers. Clark hit him, and he crumpled to the floor in delight before scampering off into the darkness. Clark asked if the tall, calm student was thinking of numbers at all. He said no. Leon reiterated the question and flipped on the lights, which revealed countless numbers covering the walls of the hall. The tall student affirmed he didn't even know the numbers were there, and he introduced himself as Donovan Westhaven. Donovan West something explained he was just trying to work out the riddle on the banner. After some debate about how to solve the gift-counting riddle, Clark and Leon agreed to investigate the office instead. The single computer was password protected. On the desk sat pictures of a woman in her early 20s holding trophies for scavenger hunts. The name on the trophies? Amelia Locke. There was also a photo of a group of students holding up a banner that said, Best RA, Gifts House. 
Clark suggested their best bet would be to head to Locke's dorm. Donovan asked if he could tag along. He would, after all, need help solving the other riddles. On the way to Gift's house, they could hear strange whoops and hollers from unseen people all over campus. Inside Gift's house, the lights were out. Clark motioned for Leon to investigate the receptionist's computer while Clark hollered a hello down the empty hall. Donovan wandered into a smaller hallway and lights suddenly came on. Numbers covered everything and from behind a door at the end of this hall came a desperate no, 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 followed by a sequence of numbers. The door cracked slightly and a voice very creepily reached out. Please turn out the lights. Donovan obliged and slowly backed out of the hallway. A genuine, thank you, oozed from the room. Clark warned Donovan that if he heard numbers like that, he might want to close his ears. But Clark still wasn't sure how exactly this thing spread, so he went to ask Leon, who'd already put on noise-canceling headphones. Clark tapped him on the shoulder, and Leon tapped the computer screen that showed the room number of Amelia Locke and her roommate, Harriet Marks. When asked, Donovan said people had been shouting numbers at him constantly. Clark wondered if he'd had any blackouts or gaps in his memory, but Donovan replied no, he felt pretty good actually. Clark pondered aloud whether Donovan might be the thing they were looking for. It seemed like he could be immune. The trio headed up to Amelia and Harriet's room on the third floor. Clark Bishop, Leon Simpson, and Donovan Westerfuck approached 328 Gift's house and found John and Keith already there. John snapped out of a haze as they entered and mumbled something about being able to do anything. Keith explained they'd come across a dead body in the elevator when John went blank and started writing the Bruce Robin numbers. Clark asked John if he remembered writing the numbers and John asked Clark if he had ever felt, quote, immense. Clark introduced Donovan to John and Keith and revealed there was a chance Donovan was the key to all this, that he might be immune to the numbers. John walked directly into a wall and confessed he was still working out the kinks. The reconvened team put their heads together on the riddle from the banner and came up with 330, the room across the hall where Keith already found a piece of paper that depicted illustrations of seven eggs, a golf ball, a cat, a demon, and another egg set upon a music staff atop a Casio keyboard. Keith then presented the to-do list from Harriet's desk. One, research the most unethical corporation in the city. Two, who is the overseer? He also had a note from Amelia's desk where she wrote she didn't believe Harriet would commit suicide and she was going to get to the bottom of it. They hit the first letters of each cartoon as notes on the Casio keyboard. It's the melody of Jingle Bells. And out the window of 330 Gifts House, they watched the bell tower in the center of the CSU campus light up all its holiday glory. This not-so-subtle clue led the party to a pleasant stroll through campus, admiring the crisp white snow, festive decorations, and constant screaming on their way to the lit old 
bell tower. They climbed the spiral staircase behind Keith, who warned them to close their eyes to not look at the corpse of an almost retired security guard. Some of them listened. The interior of the bell tower and the corpse were also covered in numbers. At the top of the tower, they met an attractive young woman named Shamwow Chameleon, who recited the numbers for Harriet Marks as she desperately tried to get onto the roof of the tower. Keith saw a sleigh lit up across the way, which indicated the jingle ball was in the Accord Student Center. John accidentally let slip to Leon that at least some of them might possibly also be ball. Keith and John helped Sham Wow out of the bell tower and onto the roof, and the group headed off across campus to go to the Jingle Ball. On the journey, a path of colorful string lights led to a sitting area which contained a ripe corpse and a frantic dancer who pointed to the student union. They entered the Accord Student Center on the middle floor of a three-story atrium filled with the pure chaos of wholly obsessive students and faculty. On their level, a girl shaved a team of live reindeer with a blunt knife and glued the fur to herself. On the floor below, a pair of muscular young men in Santa outfits diligently wrapped a student in wrapping paper with duct tape and force. Above, an older woman in a bathrobe and an aviator hat climbed a garland to the top floor. A huge disco ball and a Santa hat hung from the middle of the domed ceiling. On the lower level, a naked man used a mop and bucket full of paint to write out numbers. An ice skating rink contained three people dressed as elves. They placed carrots in various locations on a life-size snowman model and laughed hysterically. A young woman in a t-shirt that identified her as a Gifts House RA threw a laptop in the air over and over again while spinning around. A man doing squats on top of Santa's throne suddenly stopped. He looked out, wild-eyed, and screamed, Ta-Will Alicor! Ta-Will Alicor! John, with the power in his mind, commanded the chanting man to stop, unfortunately to no avail. Keith shot the guy and he collapsed into the Santa Claus throne. However, he was not dead and continued to chant. The gunshot grabbed the attention of the assembly in the atrium and they changed their behaviors. The woman with the fur sharpened the reindeer's antlers. The Santa twins wrapped each other instead of the other student. The ascending woman climbed faster. The elves took off their skates and the girl with the laptop threw it even higher than before. John accidentally shot two reindeer. Clark ran toward the laptop girl. Keith shot one of the Santa twins to death. Leon gave Donovan a gun and escorted him to a safe spot. Suddenly, the frenzied throng froze 
and began the chant. The man in Santa's chair jumped and impaled himself on the post of the throne. The laptop landed on the side of the spinning woman's head and knocked her out cold. Clark grabbed the laptop and checked the unconscious RA's vitals as the rest of the deranged chanting party executed their elaborate and festive suicides Amelia Locke took her last breath in Clark's arms. The atrium of the Accord Student Center was a suddenly still, disgusting mess. The PA crossfaded out of the classic mashup of Wonderful Christmas Time by Sir Paul McCartney and Grown Up by Danny Brown, replaced by a horrifying rendition of Santa Baby by Tyler the Creator. John and Clark fell back into their unnatural malaise and scrawled the numbers for Bruce Robin all over whatever mess they sat in. Leon Simpson, for the first time, fell to the ground to write out a sequence of numbers. Donovan was still conscious and present, but absolutely shook. Keith solved Leon Simpson's new cipher. The solve, Ben Smith who Keith recognized after a quick Google search happened to be the corpse nearest the now-dazed member of the Circle of Knowledge. Still the only team member up in Adam, Keith opened Amelia Locke's laptop. He found screenshots from the CSU Biology Department Twitter account. The first read, A few of us who are not infected are quarantined in the lab. Please call 911. Our calls are not going through. The second was in all caps. Call 911. CSU campus infected with a virus. Please help. We are trapped. Call 911. And the final tweet pleaded. We're still quarantined in the lab. If you are the person or entity scrubbing this page, please have a heart. We are running low on supplies. There were also two videos in small windows open on the desktop. One showed Harriet Marks sitting in her dorm room. The other was a dark and distorted picture with only a lit candle in frame. Clark and John snapped back to reality, but Leon Simpson began dancing like his life depended on it. Keith showed Clark the laptop, but Clark was far more interested in the glow than the content. Leon's phone went off, and he continued to boogie down with no concern for his surroundings. Due to his groove, the buzzing flip phone popped out of Simpson's trousers. Clark grabbed it for the glow, but noticed 25 missed calls and an interesting text thread. Responding to... How's it going? Leon sent, The secretary is stubborn, looking for another option. That was the last outgoing message, but there was a barrage of words from the other side. In short stabs, they wrote, I don't want excuses. Pick up. Okay, I sent them. T.O. will be ready for extraction. Don't forget to get the signatures. ETA? Question mark? Jesus Christ, what is going on? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Before the longer final message. If he doesn't get here in time, this is all over. Everything we've worked for, everything that exists, just gone. For what? Your fucking conscience? Morality won't save us. They all assumed it was Maggie on the other end. So Clark responded, hey, it's Clark. 
Donovan led the group to Glass Hall, which housed the biology lab. Clark received a text on his mysterious burner. He had asked what book, where, and this message read, your book, Calm Comfy Campground. Leon's phone also received the text. It said, fuck, what did you do? From both phones, Clark Bishop sent the question, who is this? And on both phones, he got the same response. Destiny. The walk across campus was soundtracked by a cacophony of guttural moans, which danced on the cold December winds. In the quad, they saw ShamWow Chameleon as she steadied herself on the santified minion blow-up atop the bell tower and screamed about getting even higher. In the far distance, the chopping of helicopter blades slowly but surely grew louder and louder. Given the option between a longer lit path and a shorter one in darkness, Clark persuaded the group to stay in the light. Around a well-lit corner, an old man moaned and took a citrus peeler to his frail fingers. Keith saw this horror and lost it again. The group, sans Vigna, deciphered this old man's number sequence and learned the name belonged to a co-worker who hanged himself in front of this bloody mad old-timer. They continued on to Glass Hall, Keith came to, and they found a child meticulously sticking syringes into a somehow unmoving student's eyeballs. With that, John and Keith were lost in their numbers once again. Inside Glass Hall, the sounds of a few deranged folk bounced and echoed through the halls. A trail of blood slowly dripped down the stairwell, which had a few bloody screwdrivers scattered about. On their way down the wet, sticky stairs to the biology lab, Keith Vigna tripped, fell, and knocked something loose in his head. He popped up ecstatic and grabbed what he thought were handfuls of cash, but were, in reality, handfuls of bloody screwdrivers. He stuffed them into all of his pockets and for good measure pulled a few out of a woman's corpse while he smiled and yelled they were rich. Keith Vigna then crammed his finger deep into his nose and sniffed with all of his lungs. Eyes wide, he shoved his finger into Clark Bishop's nose, who did not expect a heaping bump of pure cocaine. Clark immediately went blank, but instead of numbers, he chanted, Ta will alakul. In the basement of Glass Hall, the team stood just outside of the biology lab. Keith Vigna collected bloody screwdrivers he thought were cash. John Lee Pettymore talked down to everyone like a god might. Donovan Wester something or other panicked. Leon Simpson boogied and Clark Bishop chanted. The lights went out, and the red emergency lights activated. An ominous glow illuminated the party as the entrance of Glass Hall burst open. Orders were shouted. Crazed voices were silenced. Clark grabbed one of Keith's dripping screwdrivers. A small canister was tossed down the stairs, and a thick gas came pouring out of it. Clark sharpened his screwdriver. 
Keith and Donovan rushed into the lab. Leon danced. Down the stairs stormed a squad in tactical gear. They shouted and tossed more gas canisters. Clark jammed the sharpened screwdriver into his eye until the handle was flush with his socket. Blood dripped down his face and Clark Bishop crumpled to the ground, limp and lifeless. John stared at the scene, began chanting, and ran into the lab. Inside, a man and a woman in lab coats sat, turned away at a desk. The woman greeted the group and asked if they knew how to fix the situation. Back in the hallway, Leon started chanting and fell to the ground, surrounded by the tactical squad. John aimed his gun at the door and waited for the incursion. Barbara, the woman in the lab coat, insisted that she and Philip were just fine, much like Donovan Whatever Haven. She asked Philip to explain, but he, um, didn't move? Donovan, worried he might be the only sane person left on Earth, looked to John for help, but John was turning his firearm on himself. So Donovan fired at John to try to disable him from committing suicide, but he missed and sent a bullet right into the CSU biology department's prized antivirus machine. Barbara turned Philip's chair around so he could see this madness, but Philip held his own eyeballs in his hands, and dried blood covered his face below his empty eye sockets. The raid from the tactical squad began. Smoke filled the lab. John looked around the room and smiled. Finally at peace, John Lee Pettymore III shot himself in the head. Keith prepared for a showdown, and Donovan went to his knees, submitted, and asked for help. One of the infiltrating squad members placed an oxygen mask on Donovan, and he immediately fell asleep. But high on disillusion and cocaine, Keith Vigna murdered two of the troops with bloody screwdrivers before they eventually ended his life. Through the haze and red emergency lights, we see the two casualties of Keith's screwdrivers, lifeless in pools of their own blood. The camera leaves the lab, passes the elderly pile of a corpse in the hallway, moves up the stairs and out of Glass Hall. The CSU campus is humming. Sirens are constant. Limp bodies are being transported by teams of two in full tactical gear and dragged into prison transport buses. The sky is littered with unmarked black helicopters. We see one hovering above the minion atop the bell tower, a rope ladder allowing ShamWow Chameleon to get even higher. As we leave the CSU campus, we see a confluence of black SUVs heading toward one of the taller buildings of the city skyline, a building that is being climbed by something massive and spherical. We continue past the business district and swoop down into the back of a van heading out toward the pier. The broken, 
and upgraded and dead and metal corpses of John Lee Pettymore and Keith Vigna are jostling around the posterior of this van that pulls up to a grand old edifice alone on the edge of the water with a well-lit sign outside that reads, The City Asylum. Inside the front doors are two familiar guards, tall and overweight and all black with prominent facial scarring. After we move down through the floor, we are immediately looking through a long line of the bottoms of feet. Body after body has been laid out in a row, covered in sheets, feet sticking out. We stop on the final four soles. Both right feet are blank, both left feet have dead skin in the shape of the circle of knowledge, but one left foot has the name Maggie burned on top of the seven circles. Our vision moves up through the ceiling and into a small dark room. Donovan Westhaven wakes up to the sounds of beeps and bloops of a machine that you feel yourself connected to and you're laying in a hospital bed in a room that is completely dark except for the lights coming from the machine on either side of you you see that your blood is being drawn and there is an IV in your other arm and then a screen turns on a freeze frame of like a webcam video and it's Harriet Marks and she is mid-chant Alakul Tawal Alakul Towel alcohol. 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 And then you see at the bottom of the screen, the barrel of a gun comes up, and she squeezes the trigger, and then she, with a splatter of blood behind her falls back and out of frame of the camera and you're just looking at her dorm room with a paint of blood behind her on the wall and on the ceiling and then the video stops and a man comes out of the darkness in the back corner of the room and you can see that he's lit by your machines and he's wearing a black suit a black tie and a white shirt I need you to tell me everything that happened okay What's up, everybody? I just want to drop in here real quick to shout out two absolutely indispensable folks from over on the Discord who have made this tiresome task about 10 times less interminable feeling. First, I Shot Marvin. I Shot Marvin wrote up recaps for six episodes. They have earned a shirt. And second, Here Be Tigers. Here Be Tigers got a name check last time because they not only wrote four recaps, but their recaps were super well done. Well, they added five more episodes this time around, bringing their total to nine fucking recaps. Thank you so, so, so much. You have 
so clearly and obviously earned yourself an elusive PTBP t-shirt. As for the fourth and final part of this here season one recap project, I still need your help and I'm still willing to send you clothes in return. There's a link in the show notes and on Twitter, fuck Jack Dorsey, and Facebook, fuck Mark Zuckerberg, to a Google Doc we can all share. If you write up a few succinct but thorough paragraphs recapping an episode of this show, you will be entered to win a PTBP t-shirt. If you write up a few succinct but thorough paragraphs recapping three or more episodes, you will be entered to win one of five PTBP t-shirts. And if you really go wolf to the slap, wolf to the slap, if you write up a few succinct but thorough paragraphs recapping five or more episodes, I will guarantee you a PTBP t-shirt. Leave your handle or email address commented on the episode number so we know who wrote what and how to contact you in case we get to ship you a shirt. Join us earn a shirt, and help finish this last recap episode so we can deliver you the final arc of season one of Pretending to be People. I'm so stupid stoked. We are dumb grateful for all of you sharing in our absurd story. In the delicious words of John Raymond Ray Arnold, chief engineer of Jurassic Park, hold on to your butts. <laughs>